This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 7, High Museum. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone, hope this week has treated you well. I think that maybe, just maybe, this fall weather is finally here to stay. If you're looking for something to do this weekend, October 20th and October 21st, there is an event going on called Open House Atlanta. So it's an architectural event and they take 40 of the city's landmarks and they are free tours um, or just free admission. You can go and check it out. Now, not all of these things are historic. There are brand new buildings. It's very much centered on the architecture aspect of it. But do not let that deter you if you are not an architecture person because there are historic structures that you can go in. And I have made myself a little short list or cheat sheet because I am an organized type of nerd. <laughs> but I have Big Bethel at the top of the list. So I've talked about that church in episode one and I'm sure that I have brought it up a few times since then. I am almost embarrassed to say that in the four years that I've been doing the Sweet Auburn tour, I have never actually been inside. So this weekend, I will be in there. There's also, um, I think the Ponce condos on Peachtree are on the list and um, Baltimore Block. So if you do go, I will be there. Say hello. You can't miss me. I have a cast. And if not, definitely go out and enjoy this weather. I also want to take a second this week and just give a quick shout out to a few people that have contributed or helped me with this podcast. I have not said this yet, and now that I'm a few episodes in, I want to make sure that everybody knows how I got to this place. First is the Archive Atlanta logo. I wanted something simple, and yet I had no idea how to explain what I wanted. My coworker, Rachel, came to the rescue. She not only read my mind, but she hand drew that lettering. Her creativity still blows my mind every time I look at it, and I am secretly working on convincing her to do graphic design on the side. So I'll keep you guys posted on that. As for music, that beautiful jazz piano in my intro and outro is my brother's brother-in-law. And that is a very clunky way to say that. I really feel like the English language should come up with a word for those people because I love my sister-in-law, but I also love the Bianchini family that she comes from. So Gianni Bianchini is playing that piano, and he not only holds a doctorate in jazz piano, but he's currently a professor of jazz piano in Ecuador. Needless to say, I am very honored that he let me sample his album, Type 1, and I will put a link to his stuff in the show notes for anyone that's interested in that. Lastly, help came from a fellow local podcaster, Don Queen, who spent several hours with me at the bar one Friday night, showing me the basics of recording, just the settings, the editing, and I was ready to throw in the towel. I mean, there is a huge learning curve when it comes to doing this. So without him, we wouldn't be here. So I want to give him a shout out. Now, he runs a podcast himself called Godless Heathens, he co-hosts it with two of my other friends, so definitely go check that out, and I will have a link for that in the show notes as well. Today, we're going to talk about the High Museum. I have always put the High in the modern Atlanta category. It never seemed old or historic, so I don't know if it caught my eye per se. But what I discovered is that the buildings themselves are certainly modern, but the story of Atlanta's first art museum is well over a century old. Most other American cities had centers for the arts, museums, opera houses, 
symphony halls, etc. But Atlanta was trailing behind. And a lot of that was our focus on rebuilding after the Civil War. But still, many cities would keep their buildings from um, world fairs or grand exhibitions. They would keep those. So Chicago, St. Louis, Nashville, they had transformed buildings used for these other events into permanent art institutions. But even when Atlanta had a chance, so we had our Cotton States and International Exposition in 1895, there were a few buildings that would have been perfect for this. But in the Atlanta way, we demolished everything. The story of arts in Atlanta really begins with wealthy white women. That might sound funny, but that's who had the leisure time and the funds to concern themselves with Atlanta's art scene. So these were the wives of a lot of movers and shakers or big businessmen in Atlanta. In 1903, they formally organized and they discussed establishing an art school and a museum space. And they got right to it. They found a room, they hired a teacher, got some students registered, and they started their little art classes. By 1905, they formed an official organization called the Atlanta Art Association, and they held art exhibits around the city. With no permanent home, they hung art in vacant store buildings or in the clubhouses of their country clubs. It would kind of rotate. Their idea was to raise funds for an arts building that they could build in Piedmont Park. The city was going to contribute some money, but that never really panned out. In 1909, the private citizens of Atlanta raised money to build the Atlanta Municipal Auditorium and Armory, and they sold it then back to the city of Atlanta. So this was the first catch-all arts building. The year that it opened, it hosted the Atlanta Music Festival, but it was also true to its name in the sense that it held um, munitions and it hosted military drills. It was the place to see concerts, theater, operas, even professional wrestling, um, and some basketball tournaments. And actually, this was home to the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra before we built the Woodruff's Art Center. In 1940, the building caught fire, and after they remodeled it, it went from the original brick to being covered in marble. The amazing thing is that this building is still downtown. It's part of Georgia State's campus. They now call it Dahlberg Hall. So if you want to take a look at it, it's at Gilmer and Cortland Streets. But there's a really great historical photo from 1909 that was on the Atlanta Time Machine website. So I'm going to take that and post it in the show notes so you guys can uh, bring that with you when you go check it out. For almost a decade, these women are running the Atlanta Art Association, they're exhibiting in rotating locations, but that would change when Harriet Wilson High would donate her home. So her husband, Joseph High, moved to Atlanta at a young age, opened a dry goods store down on Whitehall Street, which is now Peachtree, and he would go on to expand the store, kind of shuffle around downtown there, but he finally opened a four-story brick structure called the J.M. High Department Store. And this was, um, he was a, a big deal. I mean, he was up there with Rich's Department Store guys and the other big first department stores of Atlanta. He and his wife would live in a beautiful mansion on Petrie Street at 15th Street. And when Joseph dies in 1906, his obituary states that his estate is valued at $400,000. Now, inflation calculators do not go past 1913, but that's a lot of money. (laughs) So in 1926, um, all their kids are older and Harriet is older as well. She donates the home to the Atlanta Art Association. 
The women then raise money to renovate the home and kind of repurpose it into a museum. That same year, they host a grand exhibition, and then the following year, they open their formal art school with several classrooms. We need to keep in mind that the High Museum in this iteration was a segregated space, just like the rest of Atlanta. Hale Woodruff, who is an African-American artist and professor at Atlanta University Center, has um, a there's a great story how he got to Atlanta, he'd heard big things about this museum on Peachtree Street, so he drives over there and walks right into the front door, um, talks to the director, and when he leaves... There is a janitor who said he was the first black man he'd ever seen just strolling through the front door. Now, Woodruff would go on to lecture at the high, but when he tried to take his black art students there, they were denied admission. Now, on a side note, the High Museum has um, Hale Woodruff's art on display. It's gorgeous. I had never heard of him until probably five or six years ago when I first saw this work there. Highly recommend going to see that. In 1949, the museum receives a large donation from the estate of James Haverty. If that sounds familiar, it is Haverty's Furniture Haverty. So if you did not know, J.J. Haverty was Atlanta born and bred. He started the furniture company here in downtown Atlanta. But he also happens to be Atlanta's first real art collector. Um, He had a huge collection. It spanned a few different styles. And he was a major supporter of the arts especially in New York, actually. Um, He gave lots of money up there to some galleries, and then he began to organize art exhibitions here in Atlanta, and he would use the Biltmore Hotel. So really, his early work was also a catalyst of forming this museum. Now, the paintings that the High Museum received after Haverty's death are still part of the permanent collection, which is really cool. In 1958, the Samuel Cress Foundation donated um, some of its Baroque art collection to the High, and that donation started to establish the European art collection that you see today. Now, the Cress Foundation also offered more works to the High, but at this point, you have to remember, it's still in an old mansion, and it's been in this old mansion for 30 years, so the mansion is um, a little bit more run down. They don't really have sophisticated alarm system. There's no climate control. It's not, for all intents and purposes, a real museum. So they did have to decline a lot of the work that was trying to be given to them. By now, the Atlanta art community is really expanding. And in 1962, there is an important trip planned for the members of the Atlanta Art Association and their families to take a museum-supported trip to Europe. The plan is 27 days exploring over seven cities all over Europe, and they wanted to see museums, see art, and come back to Atlanta with exciting ideas about how to improve and expand the arts community here. Air France had just opened a new office in downtown Atlanta, so this was the inaugural flight coming out of France, returning to the U.S., so it was very highly publicized. Again, full of Atlanta elite, it was a big deal. Now, the sad thing is that this flight would never make it home. It crashed upon takeoff, and all but two passengers were killed. The only survivors were the two flight attendants that were sitting at the back of the plane. We lost, the city of Atlanta, 106 people. So 106 of Atlanta's art patrons. These are big names in the city. I'm going to put a link to a site so you can see all of the names of who died. But, I mean, we're talking the berries of Berry College. You know, people like that. 
Mayor Ivan Allen, he ordered the flags throughout the city lower to half-mast, and he actually declared a state of official mourning in the city. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. um, canceled a sit-in that he had planned in downtown Atlanta at the time as sort of as a show of condolence. Now, interestingly, this event would bring national attention to Malcolm X, of all people. Um, He was in California at the time, and he publicly expressed his joy that a plane full of white people fell out of the sky. Um, He thought that that was his God giving them a gift. Now, the mayor of LA would publicly denounce Malcolm X. Um, Dr. King would express his disagreement. But ultimately, these remarks put him in the national spotlight for the first time. To honor those killed, Atlanta built the Memorial Arts Center in 1968. The French government donated a Rodin sculpture called The Shade, to be placed at the center, which we still have today. So if you are on the sidewalk of Petrie Street and you look up, you can kind of point it out. I mean, it's a classic Rodin. I never knew what it was um, up until probably like five years ago that I went up there and read it. There is a little semicircular monument around it that lists the names of the victims, and you can see all those names there. By 1982, Robert Woodruff gave the center a very large gift, and that really paved the way for expansion. In 1983, they hire award-winning designer Richard Meyer to build a real museum building. Now, the building was funded by about an $8 million grant from Robert Woodruff, um, but then matched by $20 million raised by the museum. So, not a small sum of money. And the building, although it was beautiful, um, it's kind of funny, it really wasn't well built for exhibition space. So there was a lot of square footage, but only a fraction of it, I think about 52,000 square feet out of like 150,000 square foot building, is really gallery space. So it only could house 3% of the museum's permanent collection. If you go to the high today, this is the building that they call the Stent Family Wing. Now, I have to interject a pretty funny personal connection I have to this Richard Meyer building. So I am 18 years old. Like I said, I think in my introduction, I went to fashion school. So I left home, set up in New York City. Uh, My parents moved me to my dorm. And I remember all the other kids are crying. And I'm just so happy to be what I thought was on my own. But, you know, 18-year-olds think that. So I was going to college, and then my mom hooked me up with a job. She was a caterer, and one of her clients was an art dealer that needed a personal assistant. Um, It sounds very glamorous. Most of the time it wasn't. I was really just hustling up and down Manhattan, running very mundane errands, like picking up lunch and stuff from the pharmacy. But it was pretty cool. So every once in a while, I'd get to pick up some great art pieces But she was friends with Richard Meyer. So I had met him a few times. He had been to her house to a few parties. And one day her friend calls me and as a personal assistant, I answer the phone and the woman asks me for Richard Meyer's phone number, which I gave to her, not thinking twice. Apparently this woman calls Richard Meyer, an award-winning internationally known architect, and asks him to redesign her bathroom. Now, I was 18 I didn't understand the gravity of this, but my boss gave me a stern talking to about not sharing people's phone numbers with anyone. And I still, that happened to me and I didn't think about it until I moved to Atlanta and I went to the high and I realized that that same Richard Meyer designed this building and it all sort of clicked what a big deal he was and then how funny my mistake was. 
In 2005, Renzo Piano designs three new buildings, which more than double the size of the museum. Now, all of those three buildings cost about $124 million, but the buildings were designed as kind of an, an entire upgrade to the whole complex. They clad the buildings in white aluminum so that they blended in with the Meyer building. And honestly, to my untrained architectural eye, when I look at the High Museum now, it does not strike me as something built in two or three stages. One of the hallmarks of Piano's design is the roof system. So they have a thousand light scoops that are supposed to capture the northern light or something like that. But it's definitely an architectural item that you notice when you look at the museum and a lot of people take pictures of it when they're there. And so that brings us to the current day High Museum building. If you have not been, I highly recommend it. What I love that they have done in the last year or two is that they've lowered the cost of admission with the idea of welcoming everybody from all socioeconomic backgrounds. So they have a free day that's once a month, um, and then they've made the admission a set lower price for everyone. They've really stepped up their game in the last several years as well, getting kind of world-renowned exhibitions. I know the one that is starting soon um, is the Infinity Mirrors one, which, I mean, getting tickets to that was, I swear to God, it could have been harder than Hamilton. So I'm still trying to figure out how to buy a secondhand ticket to go see that. But next time you're walking by or visiting, remember the story from 1903 or 1905. Try to visualize that old mansion there and you can tell everybody about the story of the high from 100 years ago. That's all I have for this week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share with your friends and family. If you'd like to leave a review, that'd be greatly appreciated. And if you have any feedback or comments or questions, you can always reach me on Facebook or Instagram or my website, www.archiveatlantapodcast.com. See you next week. 